You know, you know they opening of a sermon that can be found across all denominations of the Christian church. The most ecumenical start to any sermon is the words, is this thing working? <laughs> the answer now is probably not. <laughs> it is, right. Oh, they're over there. So as my belt doesn't pack up. Right, we're okay. Good. Okay. Now for the scripted bit. So we're looking at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. It's part of a series in which we look at the various points in John's Gospel where Jesus said, I am so-and-so. He actually said it rather a lot of times in John's Gospel, far more than we're going to get sermons on. Uh, Sometimes... It's not really that significant. Jesus probably said, I'm tired, I'm hungry. So do I. It's neither here nor there. He was tired, he was hungry, whatever. The passage that uh, Rose spoke about last week is one of those passages where it's absolutely clear that when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming to be God. Before Abraham was... I am, Jesus said. But in today's passage, I am the bread of life, might not necessarily imply a claim to be God. And I am is the great, the way in which God gave his name, so to speak, to Moses and Aaron before they left Egypt. And... uh, So in that case, before Abraham was, I am is a claim to be God. Is I am the bread of life a claim to be God? We shall see. So there are two questions that occur to me we might want to ask about this statement. The bread of life. What is it, the bread of life? i.e., what on earth does Jesus mean by it? And secondly, how do you eat it? For bread's for, isn't it? Now, three types of response occurred to me. Number one, I haven't a clue. <laughs> it looks like typical John's Gospel obscurity. Simple language expressing unintelligible statement. John's Gospel is the one they give to kids, isn't it? Or to new Christians. It is the easy one. And some of the time it is. I find it the hardest of of, of the four to understand as well. It's what is a statement that some Christians would call profound. A a word that makes me nervous. I tend to run a mile where profound. Uh, I'm never sure that I can tell profound from unintelligible from waffly. So, it must be some sort of metaphor. You can eat bread, you can't eat Jesus. So when he talks about eating his flesh, he must mean something different. That's number one. Problematic. Number two. Forget the theoretical stuff. Just be practical. How do you do it? Easy. 
It all depends on what kind of church you belong to. If you're a Catholic, go on taking the sacraments. If you're a Protestant, read the Bible. If you're Pentecostal or charismatic, it's all about being open to the Spirit. And in most churches, pray. So, if you don't like awkward questions, that's it. Sorted. My third response is that maybe we shouldn't be asking the question like this. It's the way I've approached it so far. It's as though we're able to stand back and survey God's grace as objective outside observers. What is it? What would we do with it if we got it? We're looking round the heavenly supermarket. What is this stuff? Hmm. Artisan sourdough spiritual bread mix? Wonder if it might be worth a try. Does it come with instructions? We have a well-established habit of thinking like consumers in most areas of life. So we bring that same mentality to thinking about how we relate to God. People who don't have food don't think so much like consumers. Some of the folk I meet at the food bank don't talk like typical consumers. I go through the list of food items with them. Would you be happy to have a tin of X or a pack of Y? Oh, yes, please, yes, please. I once asked someone, how are you going to cope with those tins? You said your cooker had packed up. Oh, straight from the tin, that's all right. The bread of life that Jesus is offering is for hungry people. And that's a perspective I'll be coming back to. Now at this point, we need to have a look at John chapter 6. I'm not going to look at it in, in detail, or just one bit, I will. But when Jesus says something difficult to grasp in John's Gospel, it usually helps to look at what's going on in the story around it. Around it. Jesus has been feeding hungry people. Chapter 6 began with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. These people were hungry in the literal sense. Probably most of his 5,000 guests have had frequent experience of being seriously hungry. I don't know about you, but probably the worst I've experienced is missing the occasional meal. And they have been very well fed. Any ancient reader of this story would have been very impressed by the generosity of a host who provided enough for there to be lots of leftovers. Twelve baskets full, of course. Anyway, this is literal feeding with literal bread and fish. The passage where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, comes later on in the chapter. And it must be metaphorical feeding with metaphorical bread. But before we get to it, John tells us two other stories that don't have any obvious connection with feeding. Don't imagine John is being a bit slapdash, throwing them in any old where. John is a very careful artist. 
His storytelling is well planned. So we shouldn't leave them out just because it looks to us as if John has changed the subject. The first of these stories is very short and not very well known. The second one is well known. It's Jesus walking on the water. But the first story is rarely commented on, at least in sermons I've heard. Probably it doesn't strike people as very important. And it doesn't appear in any of the other three Gospels. While the feeding of the 5,000 is the one miracle that comes in all four. So let's just read from verse 14. 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, that's the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people call him a prophet. And they want to make him king. Yet another little attempt at messianic revolution that comes to nothing. The first century BC, the first and beginning of the second century is AD, uh, have got quite a lot of such people. The difference this time is that it's the Messiah himself who nips it in the bud. But it's more interesting than it looks. Prophet and king. In the people's minds, being fed by the prophet leads naturally on to making him king. Chapter 6 goes on to talk about Moses as the great prophet under whose leadership the Israelites were fed with manna, or bread from heaven. Now, that refers to the story in the book of Exodus, when they're being led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. The greatest moment in in Israel's history. And the bread from heaven, the manna, came when they were in the wilderness, as John reminds us, at least twice later in the chapter. He doesn't actually use the word wilderness in the feeding story itself, but he does set the story on the slopes of a mountain, He makes it clear, if you look, there's a distinct shortage of bakeries in the area. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke call it a deserted place. Now, the wilderness had a particular significance to Jews of Jesus' own day. It was where revolutionary movements got underway. No Roman or Herodian soldiers to notice you. So we're in a good place to start one, the people think. And they've just had evidence they've got the right man for the job as well. What's the connection between feeding and revolution? It's how leaders recruit followers from a poor and hungry population. It was how Roman emperors kept urban riots at bay, for instance. You've heard the phrase, bread and circuses. That's exactly what was being referred to. Feed the masses and entertain them, and they won't cause trouble. So that the link between the two is actually, to the ancient mind, very, very obvious. Well, that was what I called the very short story. 
The longer one is, I think, a bit more obvious. Both Matthew and Mark follow the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus walking on the water. Luke leaves it out, and John would have felt quite free to do the same if he'd had no use for it. So, what does it add? Well, it doesn't actually use the word water for what Jesus walks on. The Greek word for lake is sometimes used for Galilee, but more often, as here in John, as well as the Matthew and Mark stories, the word that's used is the Greek word for sea. Now, the Jews had a real dislike of the sea. You think about all sorts of, all sorts of things in the Old Testament and so on. It's the, in the Old Testament, Leviathan is a sea monster who is, or who represents at least, Satan. In the book of Revelation, the beast from the sea is of satanic origin. Even if he is also the Roman governor arriving in Ephesus by boat. Jesus walks on the sea. Only one person can do that. As Job says, it's God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And when the disciples are terrified, what does Jesus say? Most translations say, it is I, or it's me. The way to say that in Greek, though, is I am, which is precisely what Jesus does say. When John tells miracle stories, he makes it clear that they are signs of some important fact about Jesus. No missing the point with walking on the water then. Now there's one feature of this passage, this whole passage, actually an awful lot of chapter 6, wouldn't like to say quite how much, but quite a lot of it, I haven't really mentioned, which ties a number of different bits together. Verse 4 you don't need to look at it particularly, but it's verse 4 gives us what looks like a completely pointless bit of information. It was Passover time. Isn't that fascinating? What a useless bit of pointless information. If this were Mark, Mark's gospel, we might let that word pointless stand. But it's John. In John's gospel, there is no pointless information. Passover was, is, let's stick with was anyway, a festival when the Jewish people commemorated their escape from Egypt under Moses' leadership to the Promised Land. The Old Testament story included them being fed with manna from heaven. It included their safe crossing of the Red Sea. And I think John has that in mind with the walking on the water. What matters is not Jesus doing what only God can do, but the fact that he got his terrified disciples quickly and safely to the other side, like Moses in the Red Sea. And there's one more thing about the Passover that John doesn't actually mention. But, before leaving Egypt, the people had a very hasty meal the night before. And that meal was repeated in the annual celebration of Passover. In the other three Gospels, it was at, <coughs> it was at a Passover meal 
that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Yes, bread and wine, body and blood. John doesn't tell that story. It didn't come in John's Gospel. And yet, chapter 6 reads like John's commentary on it in some ways. Are you wondering whether I've forgotten I'm supposed to be talking about Jesus being the bread of life? Don't worry, we'll get there. But we will get there, but we'll approach it via the idea of drinking his blood. This is something I've only... A way of making sense of this that I've only discovered very recently, it's, uh, it, uh, which I think is a rather obscure story it's based on. But um, we'll approach it via a story in... To Samuel, second book of Samuel, chapter 23. King David, he's in a difficult situation. He's worn out from fighting the Philistines, who are in control of his native town of Bethlehem. David was thirsty and said out loud how he'd really love a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which was, of course, a no-go area at the moment. But three of his men treated this as an unmissable challenge. They broke through the Philistine lines, got water from the well, and brought it back to David. But David wouldn't drink it. He poured it out on the ground. He said, God forbid that I should drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives. See the connection? God forbid that I should drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives. What a thing for a Jew to talk about. Drinking blood, completely forbidden. Kosher meat comes from animals that have been butchered in such a way as to drain the blood off. David refuses to drink the water because that would be tantamount to drinking the blood of these men who'd risked their lives for his sake. Now, whether Jesus actually had such a passage in mind, I don't know but it does show a very Jewish way of thinking, which will have come naturally to him, even if it's more foreign to us. And Jesus didn't just risk his, his life, he gave it. Now, not only did Jews not drink blood, but they and all other ancient people found cannibalism every bit as offensive as we do. And Jesus actually says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. With that sto David's story in mind, and a spot of hindsight as well, we can see that Jesus means to give his own life so that others may have life, may be rescued from death. Now, to get to this point, I've jumped quite a long way through chapter 6. In fact, from verse 22 to verse 50. That central section of the chapter contains a long discussion between Jesus and some members of the crowd. And I didn't want to go through it in any detail because following it, I'm told it's a typical uh, kind of argument that a Jewish rabbi would hold with his students, his disciples. And it, it goes to and fro between the two, and it takes a bit of following, so I'm not going to try. But 
Jesus moves the discussion on from what we had at the beginning, physical, life-giving bread, such as he laid on for the 5,000, to the eternal life-giving bread of his body, his flesh. But it isn't until the end of this section, in verse 51, that Jesus identifies the living bread, which he says, which he says he is, sorry. He says he's it with his flesh. You see this, that if you start with the David bit, to take, a, take advantage of somebody risking their life for your sake is like drinking his blood. Can't do anything like that. And Jesus is saying, take the absolute maximum advantage of me giving my life for you. That's the basic point, I think of this, uh, this saying, this I am saying. Now, Jesus is asking them to do something shocking. So, it takes time to prepare the ground. First, he's shown that he can provide bread generously. The flour, water, salt and yeast variety. That's not controversial. It's positively welcome. Then they mention how their ancestors got bread from heaven. The manna. Jesus points out that it wasn't actually Moses who provided that manna, it was God himself. Stage one in Jesus' reasoning. Jesus does what only God does. This, for his audience, is really hard to take. But Jesus has just given some quite remarkable evidence. Some in the crowd say, well, how about a permanent supply of bread then? They're still thinking of the flour, water, yeast, and salt variety, aren't they? So Jesus moves them on to the metaphorical bread that gives eternal life. And he links this with resurrection. Not everybody in his audience will necessarily have believed in resurrection. But probably the majority. You have to be posh and rich rich probably to be less likely to believe in resurrection. A lot of Jews, certainly Pharisees, um, would have believed that the righteous of God's people are going to be raised again at the last day. So that's what he's referring to. He wants his people to be raised up on the last day. So resurrection is what he's talking about. And how do you get it? How do you eat this bread? Well... He just says, the passage, he just says, believe in me or trust me. This isn't some extra, rather difficult bit of Christian doctrine. It's absolutely basic Christianity wrapped up in metaphorical language. Why make such a meal of it, you may wonder. Jesus is asking for a major and shocking change in his hearer's understanding of God and how they relate to him. Have you ever changed your mind about something really fundamental? How long did it take? Did someone just present you with a set of knockdown arguments that demolished your previous opinions? I very much doubt it. 
that sort of thing isn't usually like showing you've got your sums wrong. It's usually a long and gradual process. Jesus is saying, he's the son of man. He does what only God can do. He is giving his literal life so that they may be raised on the last day. They won't turn around and say, okay, yeah, right, next point. No, this is foundation-shaking. I'm going to go back now to where I started. I wondered what the practical application might be. I suggested, only slightly tongue-in-cheek, sacraments, Bible reading, openness to the Spirit, and prayer. All are relevant and obviously important. But none, I think, is exactly what Jesus is likely to mean here. Just a word about sacraments first. Some people... uh, mainly uh, members of the Catholic Church, some Anglicans perhaps, think that Jesus is referring to the sacraments here, the bread and wine of the communion service. Yes, he talks about his flesh as the living bread and about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But I don't think he is referring to the bread and wine of the communion service I think he is referring to the same thing that the communion bread and wine are referring to. Let me say that again. I don't think he's referring to the bread and wine of the communion service. I think he's referring to the same thing that the communion bread and wine are referring to. In other words, he is referring to his own death as giving eternal life. This seems to me to fit with the rest of Scripture. Otherwise, he'd be saying, no eternal life if you don't take communion. I don't think he is saying that. I don't think anywhere else he says that. I want to go back to the idea of being hungry. If you're hungry for the bread of life, what does it feel like? What is it you think you're hungry for? And nowhere that I can find in John's Gospel does Jesus tell us the answer to that question. Just to say eternal life doesn't help a lot. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, I'm ravenous for eternal life. It doesn't work like that, does it? So I'm going to hazard a guess. And being an honest person, I'm making it absolutely clear that I am only guessing. But it's a biblical guess. Um, And it's taken from the words of Jesus in, uh, well, a different gospel, not John. Uh, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Maybe that's on the right lines. Now, I doubt whether you're hungry for lots more sermon. So, just a skeleton version, real skeleton version, of what being hungry for righteousness might amount to. The words, the English words, righteousness and justice, are both used (coughs) to translate that same Greek word. And it's about how we relate both to God and to other people. Establishing a society of right relationships as well as how you or I treat other people. The two have to go together. It's no use kidding myself, I'm hungry to be a righteous person, 
if I keep making lifestyle choices that end up with unjust treatment of others, for instance. But there's more than just putting right what's wrong between us and others. Yes, that's part of it, of course. There's more than just putting right what's, what's been wrong with, uh, between us and God. The relationships themselves are there to be enjoyed and developed positively. I often bake literal bread. I don't do it just to get rid of hunger pangs or to have something to put on the table. I really look forward to eating the stuff. And I'll just leave you with one telling little detail from this John 6. I don't like it when people take um, fanciful devotional ideas from passages taken out of their context, and this will sound just like that, but I don't think it is. And I think it's important for hungry people that our God is very generous with the leftovers. Little detail, but I think it's there for a purpose. It's there in all four Gospels. Our God is very generous with the leftovers. Want to continue, Martin?